Welcome to Severn. Welcome to week three of our series out of Matthew's Gospel account called The One We've Waited For. Today we are looking at uh, really the event that sort of kicked off. Ooh, thank you very much. Um, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that's the, um, the baptism and then immediately following the temptation of Jesus. So we're going to read both of those accounts. It's Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop Jesus, which I got to say, bold strategy, John, uh, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed Jesus to be baptized. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left Jesus, and immediately angels came and began to serve him. This is God's word. So, in the interest of setting expectations, I will not be teaching the baptism of Jesus today. I've covered that episode in Jesus' life at length in a series we did this time last year out of Mark's gospel account called The Way of Jesus. But I wanted to read you um, those two accounts because Matthew places those two accounts directly um, next to one another to make a, um, a really profound statement. So what you have in the accounts that I just read, you have Jesus having what can only be experienced, what can only be called a profound spiritual experience where he hears the voice from heaven immediately followed by what can only be described as a profound spiritual battle where he hears the voice from hell. Uh, What I think is so striking, if you pay careful attention to the verbiage, is that we are explicitly told the spirit that descended on Jesus in the water is the same spirit that actually led him into the wilderness. Uh, Whatever comes to your mind where you hear that word wilderness... In Matthew's gospel, the word that he uses there would would be better translated desert. A wilderness is not like a forest. It's not like a, you know, a beautiful mountainous evergreen landscape. It's a desert. So a a wilderness, try to picture Jesus being led by the Spirit into this. The wilderness is a place 
that cannot sustain life because there's not ample food and water. Um, it, it, it's a very lonely place because it can't sustain a community. It's a place where you're hard-pressed to find anything that even resembles shelter. So you're exposed, you're, you're vulnerable, you're kind of at the mercy of the elements. It's a place that brings you to the end of yourself. And overall, it's a place that basically you wouldn't choose to go if you weren't led there. And this is precisely the place that the Spirit of God led Jesus immediately after his baptism on the front end of his public ministry. Uh, Matthew is showing us this to, to make a really profound point that I don't know how this sounds to you, but I actually think this is incredibly encouraging. This account is meant to show the reader, among other things, that one of the telltale signs that you are exactly where God wants you to be one of the telltale signs that the kingdom of God is, is advancing in your life, that your life is pleasing to God and that you are on the verge of doing exactly what it is that God has called you to do, one of the telltale signs of that is that you find yourself having what can only be described as a wilderness experience where you're dealing with temptation in a way that you've never dealt with it before. You feel under attack in a way that you haven't felt under attack before. You feel isolated, you feel lonely, you feel vulnerable, you feel exposed, you feel discouraged, you feel all of those things. But more than simply writing to warn us about those experiences in our lives, what this particular passage does is prepare us for those times in our lives so that we can walk through them well. And it does that for us by telling us three things that we need to know if we're going to walk through the wilderness well. This passage tells us, first off, who our enemy is, it tells us how our enemy operates, and then how our enemy can be defeated. And so that's what we're going to talk about during our time together this morning. The first question is, who is our enemy? And the obvious answer, according to this passage, is the devil. <clears throat> so let me just real quickly kind of summarize what the Bible teaches about evil. All right, people of evil all different belief systems generally agree with, with the fact that the forces of pride and hate and selfishness uh, and, and fear, those forces are incredibly powerful and they're incredibly complex. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You, don't, you can be a secular person. You can be a person of another belief system. It doesn't take a great deal of intuition to look out in the world and say, yeah, it's, it's difficult to deal with the evil of the world. The Bible goes one step further and teaches something that a lot of people in our increasingly secular culture kind of laugh at, which is the idea that the reason that those forces I just talked about are so powerful and they're so complex and they show up in, in, in so many different creative ways and they are so difficult to deal with in a lasting way, the reason for that is because underneath all of those forces, there is an intelligence that the Bible calls the devil, all right? In our culture, the, you know, the secular, modern, skeptical West, uh, a lot of people, when they're, you know, they're, they're told about the idea that there is the devil or there is a kingdom of darkness or that demonic forces exist, that kind of gets dismissed and scoffed at and, and seen as naive. But what I want to offer to you is I actually think the opposite is true. Uh, my conviction is that if we kind of dismiss what the Bible is saying about the reality of a personal supernatural evil known as the devil, the further we get away from that, uh, the more difficult we're going to find it to understand, let alone deal with, the problems that we see in the world and we sense in ourselves. Now, let me kind of walk through that for a moment before we get to point two. In the, um, in the 20th century, so the 1900s, 
the, the prevailing thought in our culture was that mankind's problems were basically sociological in nature and could be solved through sociological measures. What I mean by that is that the, the idea that was, was gaining consensus spe- specifically in um, you know, politics and academia is this idea that the reason people mistreat other people is because of things like a lack of education, a lack of resources, or because they themselves have been mistreated and so now they're just kind of reacting in kind. And therefore, the solution to society's woes are, you know, we need to increase education, we need to give people more resources, and we need to do our best to try to enact policies that create a more just system. And if we just focus on those things, then we can basically usher in a utopian society where people just get along. Um, The 20th century essentially annihilated that theory and proved it to be false. And I say that because across the, the 1900s, we saw, we witnessed on a global scale how individual leaders and nations who were highly educated and highly resourced and were not being oppressed by anybody, were still capable of breathtakingly evil acts against their fellow humans. And it left a lot of people disillusioned, and it left a lot of people asking the question, why does this keep happening, and and what's going on? What's underneath all of that? And what I'm, you know, where I'm going with this is that my conviction is that Christianity you know, a biblical worldview offers you a a more satisfying and comprehensive and less reductionistic uh, answer to that question than any other worldview you you, you survey. Meaning, if you come to other worldviews and ask the question, what's wrong with humanity? You know, why is it that there's something so off about this world, and why do I even sense that there's something off in me? Uh, You'll find that some worldviews are fundamentally materialistic, Uh, And according to them, we are, as humans, there is no supernatural reality. We are just natural, physical creatures, and therefore, all of our problems are just physical in nature. And so, the solution to our ails is basically, you just need to take a pill, which I'll say, sometimes, that is the solution. Other worldviews basically uh, try to reduce us to the psychological dimension, and they teach that whatever your problem is, you just need to talk about it. You just need more love. You just need more acceptance. And the reason that you have problems is because your parents didn't love you enough. But if you heal from that, you know, you, you, you'll be okay. Which, again, I'd say oftentimes there's a lot of truth to that. Other worldviews are, are um, essentially moralistic in nature. And they teach that if you're having problems in your life, it's because you have done something wrong. And the solution is you just need to try harder and be better. And, of course, there are worldviews out there that are deeply superstitious, and they see pretty much every problem as a spiritual problem in nature. And, and no matter what it is, there's always a demon to cast out or a generational curse to break or, you know, a ritual to perform. And if you, if you hold them up alongside Christianity, you'll find that Christianity at every turn refuses to reduce Uh, humanity in general, or you and I as individuals to just one of those dimensions. And instead, if you and I come to the Bible and ask the question, what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with me personally, the answer you're going to get from the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is it's complicated. And, And at any given moment in our lives, there can be any number of the factors I just talked about at work and at play, but above and beyond all of them, There is also a personal, supernatural evil at work in this world that the Bible calls the devil. Uh, And if you and I attempt to move out into this world and make sense of what we see out there or, or, or find in our own hearts with a less nuanced understanding of this world and of humanity than the Bible, then actually we're going to be very naive and we're going to find ourselves quickly disillusioned and we're going to make a mess of our lives. 
So the first thing that, that uh, this account in Matthew does, specifically the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, the first and most obvious thing this does is it tells us that there is an enemy that we are exceptionally foolish to ignore. But even more than that, what this passage does in a unique way is tell us how the enemy operates. When I say unique way, there's plenty of places, Old and New Testament, that are exceptionally clear that there is such a thing as the devil, uh, Satan, and there is, you know, there, there, there is such a thing as demonic forces in this world. But one of the things that makes this passage so unique is that it gives us a fairly in-depth look at, at exactly how those forces operate and how they seek to derail a person's life, which is where we're going to go next. And I actually wanted to devote most of my time to this topic, to how evil and the demonic and the satanic operates. Uh, number one, because I think that's the main thrust of this passage, but also I think it's really, it's an interesting topic that we don't spend enough time on. Before I get to it and we really look at these temptations and what they tell us about Satan, let me just make this, this, this point and, and see if this isn't true of yourself. I think for most people, when they hear about the devil, they hear about Satan, they hear about the demonic, what immediately comes to mind is an understanding of evil that's probably more informed by Hollywood than anything else. Uh, because of movies or books or, or you know, media, whatever it is, I think most of the time when we think about evil forces and demonic activity, we think you know, objects levitating or people crawling on the ceiling and speaking in a low, guttural voice. And you'll notice right out the, the gate, nothing remotely like that happens in this story. Instead, what this particular account shows us uh, about how the devil operates, these are going to be kind of three subpoints here, is that the devil works, number one, from the inside out. Number two, he works in an incredibly subtle way. And number three, his work is, is extremely gradual. Let me walk through these three ideas. And I'll just tell you on the front end here, do with this whatever you want. Putting this teaching together this is probably one of the, the, the biggest benefits of my line of work. Uh, you know, you, you spend a week, you know, dedicating yourself to one of these topics or one of these passages. I, I have, I would say, completely rethought my whole understanding of how Satan operates has been challenged just as a result of this week. So first off, what this passage shows us is that the devil works from the inside out. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, I want to place emphasis on these words, he was hungry. Very next words. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So when I say that, that Satan works from the inside out, what I mean is Satan has a tendency to play off of thoughts and desires that already there, are already there. So, so again, let me, let me pause. If Hollywood was making a movie about this particular scene, you know, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, I think you could probably guess what they would do with it. They would throw these really flamboyant and really obvious temptations in Jesus' life. It would be things like, you know, sexual immorality or drunkenness or all that kind of stuff. You notice Satan didn't bother with any of that. He doesn't even, doesn't even try to go that route with Jesus. What he does instead is he comes to Jesus at the very end of a 40-day fast when, of course, Jesus would have been incredibly hungry, and wouldn't you know it, the first temptation has to do with food. So what I'm saying here, I want to make sure that we're on the same page, what we're seeing in this account is Satan doesn't so much try to create desires that, it, that don't exist as much as he does play off the desires that are already there. And you see in the next two temptations the same thing. The, the second two temptations of Jesus, which we're going to get to in a minute, are both 
temptations that play off of the fact that Satan knew Jesus was here to be king. So he's essentially trying to come alongside Jesus and say, hey, I can help you with that. I can arrange that. How about we just go about that a little bit differently than we originally planned? So what Matthew was doing is showing us that Satan likes to enter inside and play off of, of seemingly a, a desire as mundane and neutral as hunger. He plays off of psychological drives and ambitions that we already have in an attempt to create an alliance between himself and those things. And, and this is not the only place you see this in Scripture. So in Luke's Gospel account, chapter 22, we're told, I think this is an incredibly gripping phrase, in Luke 22, we're told that Satan at one point actually entered into Judas. And from that moment... Uh, Judas began actively looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, one more time, let me reference the Hollywood thing. When we think Satan entering a person's life, we think, you know, something crazy, something outlandish, something that, that, you know, you can't miss. But what is so striking to me is that for several days, Satan had inhabited Judas. But when the disciples and Jesus are sitting at the, at the Last Supper, the final Passover, right before the crucifixion, and Jesus makes a prediction that one of the 12 is going to betray him, notice none of them have any idea who it is. You know, it's not like Peter nudges John and says, well, that's why Judas's head's been spinning around in circles, I guess. None of them have any idea that Judas was, you know, according to the Bible, possessed at that point because it wasn't obvious. So what does that mean that Satan entered his life? What it must mean is that the desires that were already present in Judas's life, which you can, I think we can make a fairly educated guess what some of those desires were. First and foremost, I'm sure Judas had a lot of resentment at the fact that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that he thought the Messiah could be and should be. You know, obviously Judas had a lot of greed because he wound up, you know, selling Jesus out for money. There was probably a, a you know, a desire for fame and respect and recognition and power, the things that he knew he wasn't going to get if he continued to follow Jesus and kind of hitch his, you know, cart to that wagon. What happened is those desires that already existed in Judas became essentially what the Bible calls a foothold for Satan to enter into his life, uh, influence his life, and ultimately derail his life. Now, Paul makes the same statement in, in perhaps a more um, a clearer way in Ephesians chapter 4. And, and let me just pause here and say, what I'm about to share with you in Ephesians chapter 4, this is the thing that, that this week really caused me to just completely rethink the way that I approach the concept of, of the satanic and the demonic. You've probably heard this Bible verse before if you've been in church for any length of time. In Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul tells Christians in the Ephesian church, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger because it gives the devil an opportunity. Now, in the English... I think the, the translation of those words might present us with a false sense of safety. Because what that sounds like to me at least, all right, don't let the sun go down in your anger, it gives the devil opportunity. That to me looks like, yeah, well, if you're angry, you're more likely to do dumb stuff and Satan loves it when we do dumb stuff. I did a little word study this week. The Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians that gets translated into our English word opportunity, what that word literally means is an inhabited place. So let me just read that verse to you now, literally, and, and maybe it'll do for you something that it did for me. What Ephesians chapter 4 is, is commanding us is, don't let the sun go down on your anger because doing so gives the forces of darkness an inhabited place in your life. And what that means 
is something as seemingly benign, as seemingly common and ordinary and mundane, and who doesn't struggle with this, as just nursing offenses, you know, just rehearsing how that person didn't, didn't show me the respect that I'm owed. That person, you know, treated me a little bit too lightly. They unfairly criticized me. They didn't show me the honor that I feel they should have owed me. To the degree that we rehearse that and we recite that and we allow that to become bitterness, to that degree, we give the forces of evil a place to inhabit in our lives and therefore manipulate our lives. Now, I, I'll spare you the time, but you can go across the New Testament and you'll see verses that clearly indicate that Satan not only does that with something like anger, but he also does that with things like pride and even fear. And keep in mind, last thing I'll, I'll point out before we get on to the next idea, that Paul, Paul didn't give that message like in the open air in the, in the streets of Ephesus, he wrote that to Ephesian believers who were Christians, which means obviously that that can happen to Christians just like it can happen to everybody else. So the first thing that, that this passage, Jesus' episode in the wilderness shows us, is that Satan likes to work from the inside out, uh, aligning himself with and playing off of thoughts and desires that are already present within us, all right? The second thing this passage shows us <clears throat> is that the work of, of the enemy, you could say, is incredibly uh, subtle. And to explain what I mean, now we're going to look at the temptations themselves. So, and there's three of them here. So the first temptation for Jesus was to turn stones into bread. The first temptation was involving, like we said, it was involving food. It was involving bread. Just turn stones into bread. The second temptation was kind of, I guess you could say, about safety. It was about Jesus throwing himself off the temple, and, and then the angels would, would miraculously save his life. And then the third temptation for Jesus was to have all the kingdoms of the world bowing down before him. Now, if you sit in those temptations for long enough, the, the first thing that I think will hit you that's really curious is that caveat here, for Jesus, for Jesus, none of those are bad things in and of themselves. Uh, you know, turning stones into bread, there's no commandment that that violates. Uh, hopping off the temple and having angels, you know, protect you. And having the kingdoms of the world bow down before you for Jesus, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. And that's the point, that, that, that Satan's work, his temptations in our lives are not obvious. So, so the question is, all right, well, if they weren't overtly, obviously bad, then why did Jesus feel the need to resist them? Here's why. <clears throat> in the first temptation... Had Jesus turned those stones into bread, you'll find, if you comb through all four gospel accounts, that that would have been the only time in Jesus' entire ministry that he used his power in a self-serving way. Go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll find that Jesus, and this is one of the things that, that scholars have pointed out is so unique about the character of Jesus. When you compare him to you know, ancient mythological superhuman figures or even modern-day superheroes, Jesus' power was always used not only in service to other people, but often at great cost to himself. And so that first temptation was about deviating from that and using your power on you. Uh, the second temptation, you know, to use his power uh, to save himself from, from falling from the temple, would have essentially, the reason Jesus resisted that is because it essentially would have violated the entire purpose of his coming here. Because as, as we know, when we get to the end of Jesus' life, his purpose was not to save himself, it was to give himself in order to save us. But the third and the, the final temptation, which maybe, maybe this sounds strange to you, the third temptation, Satan is, is asking Jesus to bow down to him. And, you know, you got to think, 
Satan, did you actually think that was going to work? Like, did you think Jesus was going to suddenly bow down to you? How was that even a viable, if, if this is like your chance to derail Jesus, you couldn't think of something better than that? But the third temptation, the, the essence of it, and I think this is actually the one we should pay the most attention to, is what Satan was essentially offering Jesus was the crown without the cross. That's what the third temptation was about. So in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus is speaking and he says, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Next verse, he said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. I, I read that, that verse to you to make the point that Jesus knew that the way, the way he would win people over, the way he would get people, men and women, from every nation, tribe, and tongue to give him glory, the way that Jesus was going to do that was by he himself giving up all of his glory for them. This, uh, this is a quote I came across years ago. It's actually from Napoleon, the general. Uh, he got himself, as you may know, in a lot of trouble and spent the remaining years of his life in exile. He did a lot of thinking, and I want to share this quote from you um, Napoleon's thoughts on Jesus and what makes him so unique. He said, I know men, and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, which I told the 9 a.m., it's probably one of the coolest sentences any human being has ever written. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius upon sheer force? And here's how he bottom lines it. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men will die for him. I, I share that with you. Napoleon understood the kind of king that Jesus came to be, the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to install, and, and the fact that Jesus came to conquer, not through sheer force, but through love and through sacrifice. And so I, I've you know, kind of walked you through these temptations to simply make the point that what, what Satan was offering Jesus in these temptations, it may not have been overtly, obviously bad, but what he was offering Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm pointing this out and I want to make this explicit because this is what he offers all of us. What Satan is offering Jesus here is wholeness without brokenness. He's offering him the peak without the valley. He's offering him the crown without the cross. And had Jesus said yes to these temptations, then in essence, what he would have been doing is putting these good things in the place of God. So the question is, what, why, why is this in, in, in the gospel account? What are we supposed to learn here? What this is teaching us and, and as I walk through this, I just ask you to take a quick self-inventory and see if what I'm about to say is not true of your life like I know it's true of mine. What we're seeing here is that the, the temptations that really tend to derail our lives, more often than not, are not the obviously, overtly immoral, bad things. Because again, Satan isn't coming to Jesus with something as flagrant as sexual immorality. Uh, what this is showing us is that the temptations that really have the power, more often than not, to, to derail a person's life, they're usually good things in and of themselves that we elevate into ultimate things. That's how you derail somebody's life. So, so think about it this way. There's nothing wrong with power in and of itself. Nothing wrong with it. 
Just like there's nothing wrong with approval. And there's nothing wrong with significance or security or stability uh, or glory or honor or recognition. There's nothing wrong with romantic love. There's nothing wrong with a great career. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong uh, with having a well-kept, well-maintained physical body. We could, I mean, we could do a whole series on those things and look at the positive things that the Word of God says, but the value of those individual things. When they become problems is when those good things take the place of God in our lives, and we elevate a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, because when that happens... When that happens, and there, the Bible is littered, Old Testament and New. And hey, our lives are littered with evidence of this, that when we elevate a good thing to the place that only God should have in our lives, two things happen. Number one, we will do absolutely anything necessary to get our hands on those things. We will justify any behavior to get what we've told ourselves we need. And secondly, we will absolutely come apart if anything or anyone threatens to take it from us. So the second thing that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness shows us is that Satan's work is subtle in the sense that he seeks to try to get us to take a good thing and elevate it to the place of an ultimate thing, the place that only God should have in our lives. But the third thing, and maybe this is is the hardest to see in this passage or takes the the, the longest time to see, uh, is that... This account shows us how gradual Satan's work is. It's not just internal, it's not just subtle, it's also gradual. If you pay careful attention to these temptations, you notice there's a progression in them. Uh, It begins, first and foremost, on a very small scale with just turning stones into bread, which is a a temptation that had Jesus bit, uh, it would have only affected him. The second temptation, however, took place at the temple. And so, this is a temptation that would have necessarily involved and affected all of the residents in Jerusalem. But the third temptation is now taking place on a global scale and involved all the kingdoms of the world. And so, again, what is Matthew trying to get us to see there? What he's trying to get us to see is that Satan loves to start small. Uh, It starts with uh, just a step. You know, in Jesus' case, it starts with, uh, you have all this power, You know, you do all these things for so many other people. Why not just use what you have on yourself just this once? Nobody's around. Nobody's going to know. It's not going to make any difference. Just think of yourself. Just put yourself first just this one time. That's all Satan ever asks us to do, to just take one more step. But after he gets us to, all he'll ever ask us to do is take one more step until one day we wake up a person, a version of ourselves that a couple of paces ago we wouldn't even recognize. So years ago I came across a review um, that the New York Times had done about uh, a movie that was centered on Hitler's early life. Not his later life where he does all the stuff that everybody knows about, but his, his early life and kind of what made him into the person that he became. And when the director started making this movie, he immediately was faced with a lot of criticism because people were kind of coming out of the woodwork to say, hey, if you make this movie, uh, you're going to humanize Hitler. You're going to make him seem like he's one of us. And the director fired back and said, that's why I'm making the movie. I want to read you this quote. <clears throat> Yeah, I think it perfectly illustrates the point here. He said, the movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The, the audience knows all about them already. This is about his small sins, his emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way he collects and nurtures offenses, because those are the sins we can see when we look in a mirror. Hitler, like Osama and Saddam and Milosevic, obliges us 
by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil, and here's how he bottom-lined it. He said, nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands. They make choices, one at a time. Point is, nobody, we know this, nobody becomes a person that they would barely recognize overnight. We get there one step at a time. We get there one compromise at a time. We get there by just turning stones into bread. And if Satan can get us to take that step, he's going to ask us to take another and another and another. So if I can just pause here and recap what Matthew shows us, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this isn't the way that you've thought about demonic activity before. Maybe you've never really thought about it before. But what Matthew's showing us here in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is that first off, Satan's work is deeply internal, meaning he will look to play off of thoughts and desires that already exist in our hearts. Secondly, his work is subtle, and that more often than not, he will, he'll try to get us to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And lastly, his work is incredi- incredibly gradual, almost anesthetizes us to the point that we're, we're moving so subconsciously down a path uh, that we don't even realize how far we've gone. That's the work of Satan. Now, obviously, that's a sobering thing, and I think this passage is meant to be sobering, and it, of course, leads to the question, well, then how can this enemy be defeated? And thankfully, there's two answers that Jesus himself gives us in this passage, Uh, and and those two answers are going to basically be the conclusion of our time together this morning. The first thing that Jesus shows us uh, is that we need the truth of God in our lives if we're going to resist the enemy and defeat and drive out his presence in our lives. First and foremost, we need the truth of God. So what Jesus does in response to all three of these temptations, and I I don't know how you can teach this passage correctly without pointing this out, but in the face of temptation, Jesus directly pivots to Scripture all three times. He answers temptation literally with the Word of God. He he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and then Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you follow Jesus' life start to finish through the gospel accounts, you'll find that particularly in moments of crisis, this is always how Jesus responds. It's like the Scripture is just ready to go. Of course, the most obvious place that you see this is at the end of Jesus' life when he's hanging on the cross. Um, at, at the end of Matthew's gospel account, when Jesus is drawing his, his final breaths, Jesus says this iconic phrase you probably heard before, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, what maybe you didn't know is that Jesus wasn't just saying those words. He was actually quoting Scripture there. That's from Psalm 21. Uh, and, and pardon me, Psalm 22. And similarly, at the end of Luke's gospel account, the final recorded words of Jesus, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, that's a quote from Scripture, particularly Psalm 31. So, so here, here's where I'm going with this. Uh, this is going to sound strange at first, just bear with me. In the movie The Dark Knight, um, which is the middle movie of the, the Batman trilogy from, from Christopher Nolan, Heath Ledger's character, The Joker, is one of the final films. Um, that, that he made. He has this terrible line. And when I was putting this together, I was, I was going to read you the, like, kind of the whole monologue, and I decided not to do that because it's actually pretty disturbing. I'm just going to give you the line that the Joker says here. He says, in their last moments, people show you who they really are. If you are familiar with that scene, the point that he's making in context is that, and this kind of embodies, if you've seen the movie, this is like the Joker's ideology. Uh, he's making the point that, that for most of our lives, this is just the way that human behavior is, we all have a tendency to put up a front. And it's easy for us to appear to be 
so wise and so noble and altruistic and brave and principled and all that kind of stuff. But when a person is experiencing a profound amount of suffering or a profound amount of pain or they know that they are near the end of your life, um, that's when what was always inside of them is finally revealed. Uh, Now, I say this to say, when you look at Jesus, when you look at Jesus on the cross, and he is in He's experiencing the most suffering possible. He's in the most agony imaginable, and he knows with certainty that he's at the end of his life. Even in those moments, what you're seeing is the Word of God flowing out of Jesus. This is why it's been said, and I agree, that when it comes to Jesus, if you were to cut him, he would bleed Scripture. The reason for that is because Jesus, all of his life, despite the fact that he's the one called the Word made flesh, All of Jesus' life, he was molded by and deeply immersed in Scripture. So the application of this idea really could not be any more clear. I'll just phrase it to you this way. If Jesus Christ, when he decided to enter into human history, if Jesus Christ did not attempt to deal with his, his humanity apart from deep dependence on Scripture, you and I would be incredibly foolish to try to do that ourselves. So I know, you know, we're at the beginning of the year and, and people come up with resolutions and especially for, for Christians, a really common one and a really trending one is I'm going to try to read through the Bible, you know, th- this calendar year. I don't know what you think about that or if you've ever tried that, but before I move on from this point, I'll just make this case. Every one of us, if we have any desire to grow spiritually, whatever it looks like, we need to have some sort of routine that regularly places us in contact with the Word of God uh, because apart from that... Then, then the only thing that we have when and not if we experience spiritual battle, when and not if we experience potentially life-derailing temptation, apart from the Word of God, then the only resources we bring into that fight is our own thoughts, desires, and opinions. The problem with that is Satan will work in, he'll turn our own hearts against us, our own thoughts against us, our own desires, our own ambitions against us. So what we need more than anything else is an objective standard by which we measure what we see in the world and sense in ourselves. For Christians, that standard is nothing other than the infallible Word of God. So the first thing Jesus shows us, I preached for a minute there, all right? Thanks for preparing with me. I felt like a preacher for just a second there. Doesn't happen often, all right? Something came out there, all right? Uh, But the first thing Jesus shows us is that we need, if we're going to overcome temptation, the truth of God. But secondly, and this will be the final thing we cover today, Jesus' response also shows us that we need the love of God. And while I explain exactly what I mean with that, let me go ahead and call the worship team up because we have arrived at the end of our time. It is is so noteworthy that at the end of of, um, Matthew chapter 3, the final thing we have is Jesus hearing God say, you are my beloved son and I take delight in you. That's the final phrase of chapter 3. And then when Satan shows up in chapter 4, on the, on the front end of, of the first two temptations, he says the phrase, if you really are the son. And you can see what he's doing there. He's going after Jesus's identity. And the point is, what we should see is that's the same thing that he does for all of us. And the reason he does that is because we all know in our hearts that in and of ourselves, we're not pleasing to God. We've not lived a life that God can say, yeah, I delight over everything that you've done. We've known that ever since Genesis chapter 3 when we took off running from God. Every single human heart knows at bottom that the righteousness and the holiness of God is something that we need to do everything we can to get away from. 
It's a threat to us, which is why when Isaiah saw the manifest presence and glory of God fill the temple, he wasn't happy about that. He wasn't excited about that. He said the words, woe is me. I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The point is, ever since sin fractured our relationship with God, we have been running from Him and we've been hiding from Him and we've been looking out in the world for what can only be found in a relationship with Him. And that, the Bible's teaching, more than anything else, that is really the essence and the cause and the root of all sin. And the only, prob- the only solution to that problem It's not trying harder to be better people. It's not, you know, batting down the hatches and muster up your discipline. The only thing that can solve the human condition is for you and I to hear deeply in our hearts the same thing that God the Father pronounced over Jesus, that we are God's beloved children and He actually delights in us. We are a source of joy to Him as our Heavenly Father. And the promise of the gospel is that by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, we all can hear that. Because at the end of Jesus' life, despite the fact that he perfectly relied on the Father and he perfectly resisted the devil, you get to the end of Jesus' life and, and Jesus refuses to take his rightful place. And instead on the cross, he chooses to take ours so that we can have his. So that we can have his. So that the moment that we give our lives to Jesus we can know that God the Father looks over us and declares over us the same thing that he declared over his own son, that regardless of the life that we lived and the struggles that we now have in Christ, we are his beloved children, and he actually delights over us. When we hear that, and as we, I think the whole Christian life is just knowing that the day you become a believer and then going back to that and hearing that over and over and over again, because as we hear that, And the more deeply that truth descends into our lives, to that degree, temptation loses its power because it no longer has anything to offer us anymore. We know that we have what we've always been looking for, by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. I'm going to leave you today with a quote I've shared with you before. This is from Ronald Rollheiser's book, Sacred Fire. He said, you must try to pray so that in your prayer, you open yourself in such a way that sometime, perhaps not today, but sometime, you are able to hear God say to you, I love you. These words addressed to you by God are the most important words you will ever hear because before you hear them, nothing is ever completely right with you. But after you hear them, something will be right in your life at a very deep level. May we all hear those words today by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for a passage in your word like the one we looked at today that um, can be really uncomfortable to look at and unsettling, um, but very sobering, which is something that we need. Thank you for a passage that reminds us that we do have an enemy and warns us about the way that he wants to operate in our lives, but ultimately a passage that leads us to Jesus who perfectly resisted him and overcame temptation, not just as our example, but as our substitute. God, please make us the kind of people that have the humility that know how much we depend on your truth and your love to guide us through this life. Please help us to build our lives on what you've said about us, about you, about this world, about what comes after this. Please help us to be people that build our lives on your truth and people that hear all throughout our lives the same thing that your son heard during his baptism, that in Jesus we are your beloved children 
and you actually delight in us. In Jesus' name, amen.